This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Battleground Podcast with me, Saul David. Today, I'm going solo again and we're veering away from the usual news format for Ukraine because we've got a very special interview with a brave, young, independent Russian journalist called Maria. Now, Maria has been covering the recent trials of Ukrainian POWs in the so-called Donetsk People's Republic in occupied eastern Ukraine. And it goes without saying that it's very brave of Maria to come on the podcast for obvious reasons. Maria, thanks so much for doing this and welcome to the podcast. Uh, nice to be your guest. Okay, well, let's start at the beginning, shall we? Can you tell me a little bit about your background and how and why you became a journalist? Well, I started to work as a journalist really early at 18 years old, probably after my first year at the university. And probably I've got classic story. I uh, entered to university in journalism faculty and was really interested in social problems in my country. And I liked to write about different things and uh, thought that uh, journalism is uh, the best sphere for it, for my development. And also I was growing at the time when Alexei Navalny, our opposition leader, was really popular. And in the 2017, 2018, he had his team and he had big, big protest against corruption things in Russia. And so I was young and interested in that. Well, because of that, I decided to be a journalist and uh, wrote about political issues and social issues, corruptions, and so on. I think it goes without saying to our listeners that um, covering those sort of subjects, particularly in the context of the current war in Ukraine, uh, puts you in a, you know, a rather invidious, indeed, dangerous position, uh, Maria. So, you know, it, it's pretty impressive what you're doing. Keep up the good work. I mentioned in the introduction that you've been covering the recent trials of Ukrainian prisoners of war, more than 118 in the uh, so-called Donetsk People's Republic. 
Can you tell us a little bit about those trials, why they were tried, how they pled in the trials, and what was the outcome? Well, I think it's a really interesting court and really interesting trials because uh, this territory, this occupied territory in Donetsk and Lugansk, they are like technically for Russia in Russia, but in general, nobody knows what really happened there and uh, what people is doing there and so on. And uh, now we understand that they have got work in court and this court has sentenced more than 100 Ukrainian prisoners of war to life or to really severe number of years in the prison for last four months. It's so productive for like, I mean, so-called Russian court because in general, our cases, uh, they could be hearing Russian courts for for years, for months, and so on. And here we can see that they sentenced so much people for last four years. And uh, in most cases, uh, it's uh, Ukrainian prisoner f- prisoners of war from Azov or from uh, other battalion, uh, and they were accused of cruel treatment of uh, civilians uh, using prohibited methods of warfare in armed conflict and killing civilians and so on. Also, we have a few cases about rape, about something else, but in general, in most cases, it's about cruel treatment of the civilians in Mariupol and uh, places near that city. So, yes. And uh, also interesting that uh, these people, in most cases, they were in the court. So it's uh, not the case, uh, cases in absentia when these people are still in Ukraine and so on. So it's real people and they are on the territory of uh, Donetsk and like will go to the jail in real life. How did the most of these prisoners of war actually plead? Because you would imagine, given that we would describe these sorts of courts in the West or in the UK as a kangaroo court, that is a court that is predetermined in its penalty. And therefore, you might imagine that some of the defendants would plead not guilty, but that wasn't the case, was it? Yes, all of them uh, plead guilty. All I have not found any news report from uh, Russian state agency or any press release from uh, Russian investigative committee that someone did not. And yes, all messages, all news uh, about this. And of course, I can't believe that more than 100 people guilty. It's impossible if I talk about data from courts, if we, if we will see other information from other courts, it's impossible, this, this data. Now, we know ourselves on the podcast, having spoken to a couple of members of the Marine Battalion, that is Ukrainian Marine Battalions, and I, I, I imagine some of these uh, characters are also involved in this 118, but these are people who were released. These are the British uh, prisoners of war who were fighting for Ukraine. And they tell us, of course, that in captivity, they were badly beaten, they were coerced, their confessions were forced from them. I mean, are we to naturally assume a similar process has gone on with these 118 prisoners? Yes. Also in this court was uh, some people from Marine Battalion. Uh, I don't remember the actual numbers of their military bases, but probably it was uh, 36 Marine Battalion and uh, one more. So I understand why they pleaded guilty. It's hard not to plead in that situation, in that circumstances. Okay. And there is, of course, the consequence of pleading guilty, which, as you say, for many of them uh, has meant life imprisonment. Um, 
and interestingly enough, you, you say in your report about this that they go into something called a special regime colony. Um, this is one of three tiers in the in the uh, Russian prison system. Can you tell us a little bit about the Russian prison system from what you know about it and what these special regime colonies are and what conditions are, are likely to be like in them? Well, in general, Russia has got uh, three types of prisons and it's general regime, top security regime or strict regime. We, we call it strict regime and special regime. So we have got colony settlements but it's uh, super light conditions, and it's not really popular for for, for prisoners, unfortunately. Uh, so in general, it's only free regimes. And the main uh, thing about special regime is that in that case, prisoners housed in uh, an individual cells on their own or in small groups. And uh, if we talk about general or top security regime, in that case, they live in dormitories. Probably in, uh, you have got some different type of colonies. I mean, the dormitories uh, are not really popular. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. And, and so conditions are, are not going to be what you might expect from a prison. I mean, to what extent are people allowed, you know, sort of basic human rights inside prison, or is it just a much tougher, stricter regime than that? As I understand, even in strict regime, they can work. So in Russia, uh, prisoners, uh, they still work in colonies and they work, it's like seamstress cutter. Oh, okay. uh, it's really a popular, yes, uh, profession for, for prisoners and they do it uh, in colonies. And as for special regime colonies, in most cases, we can see there people sentenced to life and they have got only maximum free visit of their relatives or wife husband and so on and uh, they have got big restriction to how much some stuff could be sent to them from their relatives when you say three visits do you mean three a year three a year yes i mean three a year and it's maximum for special regime and in some cases it could be even one or two visits per year and we can clearly see this difference in the case of alexei navalny because uh, in first time just here has got more than five sentences in Russia. And first of all, he was sentenced to general regime. And uh, in that case, he was able to have six visits per year. And uh, it was really a free, free regime, <laughs> if, if you can say like that. Uh, after that, uh, he was sentenced to strict regime colony, and it was uh, worse. But still, he was able to meet his wife few times. And now, in August, he was sentenced to 90 years of special regime, which we talk about. And for now, it's almost impossible for him has some visits at all. Can we talk more generally about the effect that Western sanctions have had on life inside Russia, Maria, and also on the, on the economy? I mean, from from the perspective of the West, we hear reports that Russia is making as much money out of its oil as it's ever done. It's finding ways to evade sanctions. I mean, what, what has been your personal experience of the effect sanctions have had on the economy and, and how it is affecting daily life, if at all? Well, I think it's a really complex question because uh, if we talk about uh, some straight aspects, yes, we have some effect from sanctions because prices uh, have risen, 
and it became more difficult to buy some Western goods. But I'm not really sure that uh, this helped stop the war, in my personal opinion, of course. Also, in my personal opinion, sanctions uh, have mostly affected on the oppositional part of the society. And it became harder to leave people who don't agree with Putin, with aggression, and want to try to fight with this regime, but have not got some instruments to do it. Like, for instance, in Russia, we have got some visa restrictions and closed borders for us and some restrictions for credit cards. And if you talk about visa, people who support the war, they did not go to EU at all and before these restrictions. And if you talk about people who tried to fight with the regime, it became really hard for them to, to move somewhere from Russia. For instance, if they have uh, some uh, demonstration against war and after that they need to go somewhere, uh, they have got only one option to go to Georgia because uh, they can't, of course they can have visa from EU, but it's really hard to do from uh, inside Russia. You have to wait a, a lot of time and uh, it's only a few countries who still can give you a visa. The same thing with credit cards. After the full-scale invasion started, many Russians moved from Russia and tried to continue their work from uh, other countries. And now they can't pay with their Russian credit cards uh, because Visa and MasterCard blocked this option. And as well, they can't open their bank account in other countries because uh, we have got sanctions. And does it help? I mean, then people who tried to fight with Putin, who wanted to speak out loud about aggression, who wrote some materials about corruption, about violence inside the country, they can't live abroad uh, at all. Of course they can, but uh, it, it became harder for them. And as for ordinary people in Russia who could support war, and when they have some brothers and husbands in the front line, for them it's, it's nothing. They don't want to go to EU, it's not for them. They don't want to open some bank account in the West, it's not their option. They have got local card in Russia. Of course, prices not very nice for them, but still, they can live their life as before. And they even don't think that uh, they have to pay more for some eggs or some products in shops because of sanctions, because of the war. They don't think about that, that at all. And presumably, Maria, even if they did think that, they would blame the West for the sanctions, not Russia for launching the war, which has provoked the sanctions. You know, it's it's who you blame for the consequences, isn't it? Yes. And for them, I can say that these people, uh, they are bad because they have been watching Russian TV uh, for years. And uh, it's hard to believe for them in some other position. Sometimes they haven't got enough level of education. Sometimes they just, for them, it's hard to believe in some other position. And uh, of course, for them, it's hard to blame their leader if they believed in him before. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about the Wagner mutiny? When it took place early this year, certainly some in the West dismissed it as a, as a kind of inside job, a sort of setup by the Putin regime to shore up support, to, you know, to distract from other things that were happening. 
to us on the podcast, it seemed like a genuine attempt by Prigozhin to intimidate Putin, or at least get across a message that his war leaders weren't fighting a very effective war, were failing in their duty to Russia. And of course, the consequence of all of this, we feel, uh, was Prigozhin's assassination. Can you tell us how you see the the mutiny and also what its impact was in Russia, how much support there was for it? Well, I think it was a real attempt. And Prigozhin had big support from uh, some part of the society because he was the figure in the middle. He didn't support Putin, but at the same time, uh, he supported some big ideas which Putin had before. And also he, I mean, Prigozhin supported some uh, soldiers more than it was done by Ministry of Defense in Russia. He paid uh, a lot of money for his soldiers and his uh, battalion. And that's why people, especially in the south of Russia, really supported him and really believe in him like in, in a hero. But we, we talk about regions, not about Moscow and St. Petersburg uh, in that case. Yes, some of them uh, believed in his success, but now we can see that it's impossible to have a coup d'etat in Russia, even if you are Prigozhin. If he, I mean, you know, this is pure speculation on our behalf, and we will never know for sure exactly why he took the decision not to keep going towards Moscow. If he had kept going, was there a possibility at that time that a coup d'etat, if that's what he'd intended, could have been successful? It's hard to say for me, but I believe yes, because I read an article which had written by a Russian journalist. He wrote about uh, administration of president. And now he works in Medusa. So he wrote about talks in the uh, new administration of president in that time. And they were really threatened by this event. That's why I can say that it's probably it was possible, but I can't imagine the future of Russia with it. Yeah. So in other words, so you can't imagine that it could happen now. That was a sort of one one-off event. It, it's fascinating talking to you about this, Maria, because this is very much the sense we got. But to hear, you know, from the inside that there was a lot of support, but also that it could possibly have succeeded is is you know is extraordinary. But I need I need to say that this support was from regions and from ordinary people. If you talk about Moscow and Saint Petersburg and about these oppositional circles, of course it's it, it wasn't. Uh, for them and for me, he was a crimer and uh, a martyr, and he could be judged for his activity. Of course, it's uh, it's not the best leader for Russia, and uh, from these circles, he had not a lot of support. Okay, I understand. Final question. Again, we cannot know for sure, but is there an assumption, certainly in the regions, as opposed to St. Petersburg and, and uh, Moscow, is there an assumption that the death of Prigozhin in the plane crash deliberate and was that a result of him challenging the Russian leadership? Is that what people in the regions believe? Uh, yes, yes, they believe in it. And uh, I think it's almost clear <laughs> that it's connected, at least. We don't know how and so on, but uh, yes, they believe in it. Yeah, well, thank you, Maria. You've confirmed something else we were pretty uh, strong on in our own feelings. Okay, that's all we have for part one. Do join us after the break when we'll be hearing more from Maria, our independent Russian journalist. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Velux XC. Juvederm Velux XC is an ejectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Velux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome back. This is what Maria told us next. Now, can we talk more generally about support for the war in Russia? You've already hinted at, uh, you know, the fact that obviously there's a bit of a disconnect depending on where you are in Russia. I'm guessing there must also be a generational uh, difference in terms of whether or not you're likely to support the war or not. There also seems to me, from what you've been saying, a kind of educational difference, you know, how educated you are. Uh, how sort of aware you are of what's really going on, how much propaganda you've taken in. But with all of that in mind, can I also refer to a couple of recent uh, reports that suggest war for ordinary uh, Russians, or, uh, support for the war by ordinary Russians is beginning to slip. There are a few instances of this. A group of mothers and wives of mobilized soldiers calling themselves the way home have launched a campaign to get their husbands and sons back from the front line. They say they were promised their men would return home within a few months of being mobilized last autumn. And of course, they're still fighting. We have been betrayed, say the group, by our own people. There's also, interesting enough, it, just today, Maria, an assessment by the US think tank, the Institute for Study of War, that states that uh, Russian society appears interested in discussing the outcome of the war in Ukraine despite the Kremlin's increasing aversion to more in-depth public discussions of the war. And the reason it's come out with this report is that independent Russian polling organization, the Levada Center, released a poll on December 5th detailing the questions Russians want to ask the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, during the upcoming direct line forum on December the 14th. And the Levada Center found that 21% of all questions in the open-ended poll pertain to the end and outcome of the war in Ukraine. Questions in this category included questions about the time frame from an end to the war, the end of mobilization, and the possibility of peace or a Russian victory. So 
Can you give us your assessment of how significant these two movements are and whether or not, in general, support for the war does seem to be slipping a bit? I think for most Russians, it's really important questions when the war ended and so on. But also, I I saw that in the list of these questions was the question, when we will win and so on. (laughs) Uh, So probably uh, people just tired after to almost two years of war and uh, they want to live like before but they don't know when it will be and they want to have some answer from their leader. So many people tired after the war and after mobilization because uh, since mobilization uh, we have almost a year and this year they haven't got a rotation inside uh, the military groups. That's mean that people can see their wives, sisters, their family, and they can't uh, go to their homes. So that's why it's really popular questions. And also, probably it became hard for propaganda to highlight some uh, goals of this uh, so-called special military operation. Because when it started, uh, Putin said that we need to fight Nazism and to to demobilize Ukraine in general. And for today, it's obvious that it's impossible and they need to create some new sense, some new goals of this special military operation, but they can do it. And that's why people have more and more questions about that. The casualty figures, we don't know for sure. There are a lot of estimations as to how many. We know it's a big number. These are the sort of figures that completely dwarf the numbers that effectively made it impossible for the old Soviet Union to remain in Afghanistan. So we asked the question from the outside, how is that not having more of an effect on society when more and more sons and brothers and fathers are being killed in this war? And of course, the the really obvious speculation from our behalf is that, of course, these are people from the outlying areas of Russia. If they were all from the you know, the heartland, St. Petersburg and Moscow, it maybe would have more of an effect. Is is that the reason why these casualty figures aren't really changing public opinion in the heartlands of Russia? You know, it's a hard question for me because uh, I haven't got some acquaintances in these circles. Uh, so I haven't got friends, uh, acquaintances who are in the front line, if not talk about journalists. And that's why I don't know what they feel. But uh, sometimes I read some posts in the internet that some mothers, sisters and wives, they are proud of their relative who died in the in this war because he fight for truth, for, for our country, for us and so on. When I'm reading it, I can't believe that they write it because they had really close person in their family. It could be her husband. And uh, they spent together like uh, 10 years, five years. And after that, he died for nothing in the, in the front line. And after that, she wrote that he died as a hero. And she doesn't feel some aggression against Putin and against the system. She feels only proud. I can't believe in it. And I can't see these uh, situations around 
me. I only read about it. And that's why I can't believe that it's happened, but it, it's, it's happening, unfortunately. Maria, the listeners can't see you, of course. I can. Uh, you're clearly quite young. Is there an obvious generational divide between Russians in terms of the way they see this war? Is it more to do with education, as I suggested before? Yes, we have uh, a few groups in Russia. I mean, uh, if you talk about supporters of this war, people who don't support it. And young generation, of course, don't support it because we were growing global world. Many of my friends, they were abroad. They saw how people live abroad. And we, for us, it's uh, impossible to believe that we need to fight with uh, Western evil. It sounds like a bullshit. I'm sorry. And uh, people who are older than me, uh, for them, it's not so obvious, unfortunately. And yes, we had some type of confrontation between uh, generations. But many old people, they sometimes not believe to Putin too. And I I'm happy to live in uh, the family who are against Putin and who uh, understand what is happening. And I, uh, it's not necessary for me to argue with them. But I know many people, many friends who have to do it, who have to explain their mother and father that uh, you shouldn't believe in TV propaganda and so on. Yes, it, it's hard for them, especially in this situation where they have to live in uh, hard circumstances in the country which started the war. And at the same time, they have to explain some basic things about peace to their parents. It's very refreshing talking to you, Maria, and to hear such a sort of broad-minded uh, attitude as to what's going on in the world. You're, you're very clear-sighted. You, you haven't been taken in by any of the nonsense that some Russians, of course, have believed. But does that, at the same time, make you slightly concerned for the future of Russia? I mean, how optimistic are you that you will be able to make your own life in a, you know, in a free Russia, a Russia that you can be proud of in the future? Well, I really want to do it. And I really believe that I will do it. But I don't know what I need to do to make it possible, what my friends need to do to make it possible. Because next year we have the elections of president, but of course, it's uh, super obvious who will win. And it's hard to plan something for next year, for the year after, because it's impossible to live in this country, as well as almost impossible to, to create some uh, other way for development. But yes, I believe that my generation will build other Russia after some years. And me, my friends and me have got the same rights to represent Russia in the world. The same, I mean, the same uh, which Putin has. And when Putin has uh, right to aggression, we have a right to represent uh, the kind side of Russia and the other side of Russia who thinks in another way. Well, it's been great talking to you, Maria. Um, keep up the good work, stay safe, and fingers crossed that your aspirations for a very different Russia will come true one day. Thank you. Well, that was an extraordinary bit of insight into what is really going on inside Russia and how ordinary people are thinking. And the first thing that struck me in Maria's comments was 
actually how counterproductive, in her view, some of the sanctions have been. They haven't really had that much effect on ordinary people's lives beyond raising prices. And those people who might be upset at the raised prices uh, would simply blame the West rather than Putin. On the other hand, and this was the really significant point she made, the opposition people, the people most likely to be acting against Putin's regime have actually been damaged by sanctions because it makes them very difficult to operate, particularly if they're living abroad. So, you know, it's a really interesting perspective, isn't it, on how counterproductive sanctions have been. We think in the West they must be having some effect, but according to Maria, not so much. And, and the effect that it is having is not what the West would hope for. More generally, you know, really interesting to hear her points about the division of support for the war. The young, uh, you know, it's encouraging to hear people like her tend not to support the war. The older generation are more likely to have been convinced by Russian propaganda, watching so much Russian television over the years. I mean, it's cheering to, to hear that Maria doesn't have to convince her own parents, who seem to be quite a broad-minded liberal bunch, but many other people do. And this is obviously, you know, a point we've made before, the sort of split you get within families as to who to believe and whether or not you know you, you're suckered into the Moscow line about Nazis in Ukraine. It was also good to hear confirmation of our line on the Wagner mutiny. It was a genuine mutiny. And in Maria's estimation, it actually had a chance of succeeding. That wouldn't be possible now. Uh, and also confirmation that Grigozhin paid for that attempt to ruffle Putin's feathers, you might put it, with his life. Uh, little doubt in Maria's mind that he was ultimately assassinated as a result of that. Well, what about the future in Russia? Well, hearing someone like Maria speak, it does make you a little bit more optimistic about what might happen in the years to come. You know, But it is important that people like her stay and try and change Russia from within. Okay, I think that's all we have time for this week. Do join us next week when I promise Patrick and I will be back covering the news in both Gaza and Ukraine. Goodbye. Goodbye.